uh, has been a, a buzzword in the Western world for many, many years now, hasn't it? It's perhaps a, a decade or more since Gordon Brown, the then Prime Minister, he described the Union Jack as a symbol of tolerance, followed very shortly thereafter by Dean Cameron, who described British values as those of pluralism and those of tolerance. So you get the idea, tolerance has been a really prominent idea. It has uh, been a buzzword in the United Kingdom, in the Western world. Uh, It's been at the forefront for a number of years. Tolerance. Well, here's uh, what I want us to consider this morning. How does that idea, how does tolerance work and function within the wider Christian church? Now, hopefully you see what I'm getting at when I say that. What should our attitude in here, what should it be towards those Christians who are not in our particular theological tradition? And what should our attitude be to, to other Christian denominations, other Christian groups? You know, in this sort of really, what is, I mean, I'm sure you'd agree with this, a really sort of challenging uh, environment for the Christian church. Should we, should we be willing to work with our Baptist and Anglican uh, brothers and sisters, despite the obvious and rather large uh, differences we might have with them? Should we be willing to do that? Or, in this uh, increasingly secular age, should we actually value our reform distinctives so much, cherish them so much, that we resolve actually to, to go it alone? How does it work? Like which of those two things is it? How does tolerance function within the wider Christian church? Uh, Well, this morning, uh, friends, we find ourselves actually in the middle of a section of Scripture where Jesus is teaching the church about discipleship. So he's really, in Mark 9, teaching uh, of what true discipleship entails. And in the particular verses that we are looking at today, what we are told has much to say to us about our attitude towards not just Christians... But these verses have much to tell us about our attitude to Christians who are, quite simply, Christians who are not like us. Okay? Um, So I would ask you and invite you to please have Scripture open. Uh, Would you please turn with me to Mark chapter 9 and to verse 38 to have it there uh, open in front of you. God's word open in front of you. And um, this morning we will, uh, God willing, look at three elements we see in this portion of scripture. This is the first. We we see here uh, the sort of insular exclusivism that Jesus rejects. Let me repeat that just to make sure that we get this. We see in this portion of scripture the sort of insular exclusivism that our Lord, that Jesus rejects. So what does that mean? What do we have here? Uh, Well, what we're dealing with, I'm sure you uh, can see almost straight away, uh, what we're dealing with here is an unauthorized exorcism. An unauthorized exorcism. So you see what's happened. 
the disciples have been traveling around in the Middle East and as a group they've been traveling around and they come across this man and what is the man able to do or what has he been doing? He's been driving out demons. That's what he's been doing. So he's not one of the twelve, but he clearly does have the power to exorcise people or free people eh, from the powers of darkness. Now, if we're going to understand the portion of scripture, there is one very small, short phrase that we need to get our heads around. And you'll see it in verse 38. It's, It's crucial. I'm sure you see that it's crucial. I ask you, how was it that this man was driving out demons? What's the manner of it? Do you see? How is he doing it? He's doing it in Jesus' name. So I'm asking you, do you see how absolutely fundamental to understanding the whole of this portion of scripture that that phrase is? Do you see it? He's doing it in Jesus' name. What does that mean about the man? It means that this man, listen, it means that the man is a Christian. It means that this man that we're dealing with this morning is a believer. You know, you, you see it, don't you? That he is able to successfully invoke the name of Christ here means surely that he is a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this man driving out the demons is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, what are we told here? Do you see it? The disciples try to stop him. Isn't that, doesn't that have you scratching your head? Doesn't that have you wondering what's going on here this morning? Here is a Christian man who's freeing other people from the powers of darkness. The disciples come along and they try to put a stop to it. Isn't it bizarre? What on earth is going on here? Well, I think we, we, we get an insight, certainly, into what's going on by just who it is that is addressing Jesus. Do you see who's speaking to Jesus here? Who is it? Look at verse 38. It's John. Now that's, that is interesting because it's unusual. Um, This is the only instance in the whole of this gospel where Mark singles out John like this. The only time he does it. So it's not just a passing comment. This is, this is important to note that it's John. So, what do we know about John? What has Mark already told us about John? What do we know? We know that he's Zebedee's son, right? We know that. We know, what else do we know about John? His brother is James. We know that. What else do we know about John? Do you remember it? John is one of the inner circle. Like John is one of the three disciples that Jesus has chosen to take with him up the mountain to witness the transfiguration. And don't you see how that affects this? Do you see what's maybe happening here? Why has John been at the forefront of putting a stop to this this man here? Is it not out of pride? Is it not perhaps that John is here desperately trying to protect and safeguard his own special relationship with Jesus? He doesn't want this guy coming in and encroaching on this. He has this this lovely relationship with the Lord. He doesn't want this man coming in, this upstart, this nobody threatening this. You see? Maybe it's that. Maybe it's, come on, maybe it's just jealousy, is it? 
Like, I say to you again, what is it that this man is able to do here? What's this man got power to do? He is able to free people from demonic forces. Come on, let's just go back two sermons or three sermons. What was it the disciples were not able to do? Mark 9, what could they not do? They could not free people from the shackles of the demonic, even in Jesus' name. They couldn't do it. Do you see, maybe it's just envy. Maybe that's the root of their opposition here. But I think, truth be told, friend, the text tells you the reason for their hostility. So you look at the end of verse 38 with me. So the, the NIV, if you're using the church, but the NIV says this. So John goes to Jesus on behalf of all of the disciples, says to Jesus, look, Jesus, we saw this guy and he's driving out demons. We told him to stop. Why? Because, what does the NIV say? Because he's, he's not one of us. Now that's, 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 I think is, is right. It, the original, maybe the force of it is a little bit more like this. John goes to Jesus, says to Jesus, we've stopped this guy from driving out demons. Why? Listen, see if you get the clue of the problem. Why? Because the man was not following us. Now you see what it should be, if anything. Surely it should not be because this man is not following us, but we stopped him. Why? If anything, it should be because this man is not following you. Now, do you see what's going on here? Do you see the heart of the matter here? The disciples are caring much more with identification with them than they are caring about identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is about elitism. This is about exclusivism. And it is something, I'm sure you note, that Jesus will rebuke. Now friends, you, you, you listen to me because this, this next thing is not all that easy to say. I firmly believe that the problem that we are confronted with here in Mark 9 is a problem that we have in here. I'll put it like this. If we as a congregation were to go out into England today, and if we were to ask Christians in England this question. If we were to ask them who they think, which group of believers do they think is most prone to exclusivism, most prone to making and drawing up cliques, what would the Christians of England say? Would they say Baptists? Would they say Anglicans? Would they say independents? Maybe. But I think most probably, do you know what they'd say? They'd say Presbyterians. Wouldn't they say that? That the reputation that we have in this country is not just for being hard and harsh sometimes. The reputation that we have is for being insular and being unaccepting of other Christian groups. It's not easy to hear, is it? But do you know, do you know what's even more difficult to stomach? that that seems to be getting worse. See, what seems to be happening in the United States at this, mo- at this moment, and, and it's, it's happening here, I think, as well, to a, a, a lesser degree, is that the Reformed community, Christians, like us, Presbyterian Reformed Christians, are drawing a distinction, a dividing line between 
other Christians, the evangelicals, a distinction between other Christians and ourselves. You see it? That, that Presbyterians, even more than we used to do, are defining ourselves by what we are not. We're not like the wider Christian scene. We're not like the evangelicals. We're not like them. We're separate to them. We're different to them. Do you know what? We're better than them. We are formed. Now, do you see the danger, friends? The danger is that you and I can value our brand of Christianity so much. What does it become? It becomes an idol. That actually we can take Presbyterianism, we can take Reformed Christianity, and we can cherish it so much that we find ourselves loving it more than the very gospel itself. And do you see what that is? Do you see what the danger is? Do you see what's going on there? Just like the disciples in Mark chapter 9, what do we end up doing? We end up caring more about people identifying with us than with people identifying with the risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that is a problem. The second thing we see here is the sort of broad inclusivism that Jesus expects. So again, I'll say it again. Uh, It's not, again, the catchiest of uh, headings for a, a sermon, but the sort of broad inclusivism that Jesus expects. So we've seen, I think, in, in Mark chapter 9, uh, something of how we should not behave. But what if we flip it to the other side? What the positive side of things? How should you and I, as a church, how should we view and value a Christians outside our denomination. Well, if you look at the text, you see straight away that Jesus' approach is very different to the disciples. Isn't it different? I mean, the disciples have said, we found this man, he's not like us, and they're trying to put a stop to his work. And Jesus says to them straight away, don't stop him. So the most basic thing that we learn from that is that Jesus' attitude is much more generous than than that of the twelve. Here's the thing, though. He doesn't stop there. And what Jesus does in, in the subsequent verses is provide for his church a couple of reasons, a couple of lessons why you and I should be welcoming and accepting of our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, even if they are different to us. Okay, now the first of those lessons you'll see in verse 39. And it's to do with inconsistency. So I wonder if you would do this. Would you follow me as I I read verse 39? Would you look at it with me? See if you get the lesson about inconsistency in verse 39. Jesus says, No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. uh, You see what he's saying, I'm sure. It's just like Christmas. In some ways, our, our, all of our minds are turning towards Christmas, whether we like to admit it or not. But it's just like Christmas, isn't it? Just as if you were on Christmas Day to give your loved one a very lavish and expensive gift, you're not going to expect them in the very next moment to say something horrific and horrible about you, are you? 
Let's hope not. Well, just as that is true, so it is with the Holy Spirit. You know, if the Holy Spirit so blesses a person that the Holy Spirit chooses to work through them, what the Lord Jesus is saying here is that in the next minute, that believer then, so blessed with the Holy Spirit, is not going to immediately turn against the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be madness. It would be inconsistent. Save that lesson. But he gives us another my friends, we know how uh, Hollywood and the movie industry works, don't we? Uh, Hollywood never just releases one film in a particular genre. It releases a host of them. Uh, so let's, let's take superhero movies as the obvious example. It's not that Hollywood makes one superhero movie and then goes on to something else. It makes, I don't know, 2,000 superhero movies. And same with Christmas and same with Valentine's Day and so forth. A host of the same type of movie. Now, a few years ago, and we are going back a few years, uh, Hollywood was famed for making a whole batch of, you know, big blockbuster, big budget war films. You know, epic war films. Sort of World War II films. And if you're a fan of those uh, type of films, you know that in nearly all of them, you find a similar scene don't you? A World War II film. Like, for obvious reasons, they're told from the viewpoint of Americans, aren't they? For obvious reasons, I mean, it's Hollywood making the film. So, in nearly all of these World War II films, you get the same scene where the American army encounter the British. And uh, isn't it fantastic to see how the British officers are usually portrayed by Hollywood? Usually the British officers are bumbling idiots, aren't they? You know, they're sort of hesitant people and, and usually rather eccentric fools. And they'll, usually they'll have a, a creamy moustache and elaborate moustache and they'll always have a cup of tea before they go into war. The usual way of portraying the, the, the British, isn't it? Now, how do the American army, how do they deal with the, these, these these rather eccentric British officers. Well, actually, they're very tolerant, aren't they? Like, they look at them and they think, these guys are weird, man. But they let it go. Why? Because they're on the same side. They're strange, but they're fighting. Everyone's together fighting the Nazis. We're all trying to fight Adolf Hitler, so let's let it slide. Do you see it? Do you see that in effect that is what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here to this church? I mean, look at, look at verse 40. He says to us, he says to the twelve, whoever is not against us is for us. Do you, do, do you see it? That because there is no neutrality at all with the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no neutrality with the good news of the gospel, regardless of how eccentric their brothers and sisters in Christ might be, regardless of how unusual they might be. What is Christ saying to his disciples? He's saying, embrace them. They might be strange. Welcome them. Embrace them. Why? Why? Because they too are fighting a similar foe. Do you see it? Whoever is not against us is for us. Now, we have to apply this to the life of London City Presbyterian Church 
And I have to acknowledge how dangerous a thing that is. And I'm sure you see why it's dangerous. The message here is that we should be accepting of other Christians and other Christian groups and denominations. Do you see how dangerous it is? We can take that too far. You know, our attitude could be, well, you call yourself a Christian, enough for us. You know, we welcome you, you're the same as us. And it doesn't work like that. And so you you hear this, that true Christian unity, it's only unity when it's around the gospel essentials. And in this church, we do not accept and and warmly embrace somebody who, who denies the virgin birth or denies the inerrancy of scripture, even, or denies the atoning work of Christ or denies the bodily resurrection. No. But you see the message? I mean, the message from Christ here is that he wants us to care less about denominationalism and much, much more about making his name known to the lost. That the gospel that we have in here is not the gospel of Presbyterianism. It is the gospel of God. And so what do you think? Do we need to change our attitude and our approach Are we in here too dismissive of our Anglican and Baptist brethren? Are we? And do we look down our nose at independence? Do we do that? If so, we have to change. Because yes, our reformed distinctives are important. They are absolutely crucial. But Christ Jesus wants us to embrace and to welcome Christians who are not like us. Friends, say to you this morning, let us not make an enemy of people who are on our side. Because you and I as Christians, we have an enemy. And he is ferocious. He is fierce enough. So let's ensure in here, not just that we are a broad church, not that, but let's ensure that we are as a congregation a biblically broad church. So we see the sort of insular exclusivism that Jesus rejects. We see the sort of broad inclusivism that Jesus expects. And then the last thing that we have to note is the sort of heavenly reward that the Christian collects. The sort of heavenly reward that the Christian collects. Now, at the end of this portion of Scripture, having just spoken about those who are for us. Jesus has spoken about those who are for us. Do you see what he does right at the end? He gives us an example of those who are for us. Okay? And do you see what the example is? Would you look at verse 41? Have a look and see what the, the example is. It's about somebody giving somebody else a cup of water. A cup of water. I mean, what, what do you think about that as an example? Do you think, well, that's not a particularly significant example. Somebody giving somebody else a glass of water. That's not that, that big a deal. If you're thinking that, put yourself in the context for a moment and imagine that situation, if you can, where you're in the first century and you are walking through the 
desert in the heat of the day. Can you imagine what that would be like? Imagine it, you're dry, you're parched, and then somebody comes to you and offers you a glass or a cup of water. Suddenly, it's kind of, it takes on a whole different dimension, doesn't it? And I wonder if you spotted it. Did you spot the manner in which the water is given? Did you spot the phrase again? Did The water is offered in whose name? Whose name? The water is offered in Jesus' name. So again, do you see how that colors our interpretation here? It's not just one guy offering another guy some water. What is it? It's a believer. It's a child of God doing an act of service to another child of God. These are Christians that we are dealing with here. And maybe because of that, you recall just how prized such acts of service are by the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know, do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew 25? I think it's one of the most staggering verses. Listen, Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these brothers, whatever you do for your fellow Christians, what is he going to say? Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these brothers, you do for for me. Aren't you with me? I think that's a staggering verse. That Christ views our service of our brothers and sisters as what? He views it as kindness from us towards God. Isn't it? Isn't it a stunning thing? And you see, don't you, that that is what is reinforced here. Because at the end of the verse, at the end of 41, Jesus gives you and he gives his disciples a promise. And I think it is a promise to motivate them. Do you see? He says that if you give water to Christians, if you serve other believers, what is the promise? That they, this will come with reward. <laughs> and that's not the idea, that if you serve your fellow Christians... You know what? You're going to be rewarded with a nice, warm, fuzzy glow in your heart. It's not the idea, is it? He's seen to the disciples, if you serve your brethren, if you serve your fellow Christians, that comes with eschatological. It comes with heavenly reward. And so I ask you this. Do you see... How that there adds to what Christ has already taught us in this portion of scripture. Do you see it? Friends, that Christ so values our service of Christians who are outside of Presbyterianism. That is so cherished by the Lord Jesus Christ. That in the very next breath, he promises you glorious reward. Isn't that motivation? Isn't that motivation for the likes of you and for me to serve, even if it is small ways, to serve the wider church of Jesus Christ? Isn't it motivation for that? But but I'll end with this. Um, You'll agree with me, I hope, that everything that has been said thus far, really, in one way or the other, is for the church and it is for those who love Jesus. Isn't it? The message of this text and the message of the sermon is for those who are united uh, by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here's the question. What about for those who are not? And what about for you in here who are not, uh, let's use this expression, for those in here who are not born again, for those who, who don't even recognize what that expression means, what, what, what about for you? 
Well, surely you see the essence of this portion of Scripture. You see what the disciples have done? They have excluded a man because of their narrow view of religion. Haven't they? Isn't that what they've done with this man who's got the power to free the demon-possessed? They've excluded him because he doesn't fit with their own view. So I wonder this. I wonder, if you're not born again, whether you see just who it is today in your life you are excluding. Do you see who it is? If you're not born again, today in your life you exclude the Lord Jesus Christ. That in effect you you are saying to Jesus today, by your unbelief, you're saying, I do not want you, Jesus, and I do not need you, Jesus. I've got this covered. I don't want you. I don't need you. In fact, I will deal with my own standing before God. I do not need you. And I hope, I hope, I pray that today you get a glimmer, even a, a slight glimpse of how untrue that is. That you need Jesus. You desperately need the forgiveness that only he offers. And so I really will end with this question. Friends, in your life just now, Spiritually speaking, are you walking through the desert in the heat of the day? Is that what you know to be true in your life? Are you dry? Are you parched? Well, listen to me. In the gospel today, the Lord God, he offers you this. He says, John seven thirty seven. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do you see what God's doing today? Do you see what he offers you in the gospel this morning? He confronts you, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he offers you a cup of living water. So what do you, what, what do, you do? What are you going to do about that? Will you continue? continue to exclude the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will you come to him this morning and drink? If you do that, friends, understand that forgiveness awaits and mercy awaits and grace awaits and love awaits. And if you trust today in the Lord Jesus Christ, for you too, there will be future, eternal, heavenly reward. Let's pray.